You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The psychological tools that enable social engineering just don't change. I mean, they're the same contracts as as has always been out there. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hi, Joe. Hi, Dave. Later in the show, we're going to be joined by Jenny Radcliffe. She's from Human Factor Security. She's an expert when it comes to social engineering and training. And we are back, Joe. Before we get to this week's stories, we got some feedback from a listener. All right. Uh, There's a gentleman named Eric, and he was following up on some of the stories that we'd had about gift cards. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a common scam. People right. are asked to go buy gift cards at the drugstore, uh, Apple gift cards, Google gift cards. And Eric uh, wrote us in. He said he enjoys the show. And he said, yesterday, I had to go to CVS Pharmacy to pick up a few things. One was a Google Play gift card for a birthday gift. Mm -hmm. When I went to check out, the cashier got prompted on her computer to ask me if I was buying the gift card for myself or for someone that I knew personally. Hmm. He says, I was blown away by this. I don't think it will end the current plague of scams, but anything little like this that help raises awareness is a step in the right direction. I agree. I agree. Actually, I've heard of this before. One of our listeners, super listener Chad, Mm -hmm. has worked at CVS and had said this on Twitter, I believe, that this is something that CVS has done. And I hope that I'm getting this right because I'm doing this from memory. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But yeah, that's great. Kudos, CVS. Yeah, this is great. Uh, Recognizing that there's a problem here. You know, it's not unlike if you go and buy a cough medicine at the grocery store and you try to go through the, uh, the checkout lane, it'll flag someone to come check and make sure you're old enough to buy that. Yes. Yeah. So all right, this is great. So again, thanks, Eric, for uh, sending this in. It's good to see that the uh, the retailers are responding to this sort of thing. It, that's good news. All right, Joe, well, uh, what do you have for us this week? All right. My story comes from the Toronto Star and the reporter is Claire Theobald. And this is a very long story. Okay. So we're going to put a link in the show notes because it talks a lot about money laundering, which we're not, not really going to touch on here. There's a university in Canada, in Alberta, called uh, McEwen University. It's mm-hmm. a, actually a pretty big university. They have a lot of students. And they're working on Allard Hall, which is a new building that they're putting up. It's a performing arts building, and it's going to cost them about $180 million when it's all said and done. Hmm. Naturally, when you're building a new building, there is tons of email communication about process, logistics, finances, and things of that nature. Right. And on June 27th, an email came in to McEwen from James Ellis of Clark Builders. Okay. Uh, the letter starts with a very casual, hiya. <laughs> okay. And then asks the school's accounting department to reroute payments to a new National Bank of Canada account, right? Hmm. The email has an attachment that looks to be signed by Mark Timberman, who is Clark Building's CFO. Yeah. I think that's a great name for a building executive. Timberman, yes, it is. Right? Yeah, that's great. It's great. Very Canadian name, I'd yes. say. Yeah. So an accounting technician changed the routing information in their accounting system. Mm. And one month later, McEwen makes a $1.9 million payment to the new account. It bounces back, though. Hmm. So they wonder what's going on. They they contact the National Bank of Canada, and the bank says, that account doesn't exist. Wow. So the accounting tech responds to the original fraudulent email asking for corrected banking information. Oh, no. Right? So if you're you're the scammer, you've got to be like, 
Oh, you got to be kidding me. This actually worked, <laughs> right? Yeah. So four days later, he gets an email back and it's got corrected information to a, an account at TD Bank and another letter from Mark Timberman. And attached. this is from the folks who had asked for the initial change in Correct. The account information. Correct. All right. This time it worked. And over the course of one week, the university transferred $11.8 million to that account at TD Bank. Wow. And it took them almost two months before they learned that Clark Builders hadn't received the money. The real Clark Builders. The real Clark Builders were like, hey, where's our money? Prime example of a spear phishing attack. Right. Right. The person that sent this email, James Ellis, they have no record of anybody named James Ellis ever working at Clark. Mm. And the CEO or CFO, rather, had no no recollection or no, he had never signed this letter. This was completely fraudulent. Right. The story is very in-depth and talks about the laundering process of the money, which we're not going to go into here. It's just way too convoluted to try to talk about on a podcast. But the money essentially goes around the world and winds up, there's a number of other parties that they talk to, but it eventually winds up in a legitimate real estate deal in British Columbia. Hmm. Amazing. Yeah. All this money goes around the world and comes back very close to home to be used to purchase some real estate. And is traceable. And it's, yeah, it's traceable. And, and they've actually recovered about $10.9 million of the $11.8 million. Still, that's nearly a million dollars. Yeah. <laughs> 906000 dollars wow. that they've lost in this deal. Definitely not as bad as it could have been, mm-hmm. uh, but it's still pretty bad. It's almost a million dollars that they've lost. I've got so many questions about this story. First off, I don't think the laundering was done very well, right? Because if it's obviously because they got back more than 90% of it. The people who are participating in this real estate deal probably have some inclination that the money they're receiving or going to use for it is not legitimate. Why would you? I, I, I don't know. Who knows? There's, By the time it's made its way around the world, right. it's Maybe hard they thought to... they had it done. But there you go. Oh, the email address on the email that came in looked like a legitimate email account. It was displayed as a legitimate email account for Clark Builders, but behind the markup, they had spoofed the email address. Right. Interesting, too, that at the point where they tried to pay almost $2 million and it bounced back. Right that nobody got on the phone. <laughs> right. That would have been my yeah. first thing is yeah. I would have gotten on the phone. I would have actually, when I received the, here, here's how you handle this. When you receive the information that you need to change account routing information mm-hmm. for any of your customers or any of your business partners or people that you buy services from, I think that merits a phone call. Mm-hmm. And maybe a policy that says, anytime we're going to have these kind of changes during a contract, then we're actually going to write you a check and mail you a check. Maybe that's a good way to get around it mm-hmm. as well. Just some extra steps. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting, putting that as part of the deal, that, that as an expectation for everyone's protection. Yeah, accounting numbers will not change. All right, well, it's a good one, and we'll have a link to uh, the story in the show notes. So if you want to dig into all the money laundering details, that'll be there for you. My story this week, this comes from Forbes. It's from John Coates here. He's their consumer tech reporter. And this is about app scams. These are sneaky apps that that make their way into the app stores. They purport to be utility apps, but they trick you into paying ongoing money in perpetuity. Hmm. So this particular story digs into an app called QR Code Reader. Now, this is on the Apple App Store. Mm -hmm. Now, what's interesting is if you have an iPhone, it reads QR codes Right just, from the camera app. Yeah, just because. You, you, right. you don't need a QR code reader to do that. But this is one of the most popular apps on the App Store, one of the most profitable apps on the App Store, because it tricks users into paying $156 a year 
as a subscription wow. when they download this. And, and here's the really tricky part. Here's why it caught my attention. So huh. the workflow is you download the app right. and you open it. And when you open it, there's a big start button. It says, time to go. Here we go. Time to use your, your reader. And there is some hard-to-read pricing information, you know, the fine print that right. most people will, will skip by. The big print giveth, the fine print taketh away. There you go. And it turns out this fine print is basically the big start button that you're clicking on is you agreeing to this ongoing payment. Right. So what it does is then takes you to the Apple Payments confirmation screen. So Apple, to their credit, before you can pay for something, they take you to a screen that says, hey, do you want to pay for this? And the app is set up so that it'll be free for three days and then $3.99 a week forever. So you're at this screen and you want to get out of this screen. Well, right. so what's your inclination once you're in this screen? You're going to want to dump out of this, right? right. <laughs> you're going to want to hit the button on your iPhone to take you back to the main menu. Right. Well, on an iPhone, on, on many iPhones that don't have Face ID, right. they have Touch ID. Uh, so what happens when you go to press the button to dump out of the app? It reads your fingerprint and authorizes the payment. Bingo. <laughs> Bingo. Genius. Yep. So that's the trick. And so now you're signed up for $4 a week, $156 a year <laughs> for an app that does nothing that you're Phone doesn't do on its own. Right. And uh, this story lists a bunch of other apps that are up to similar tomfoolery and, and no good. There's a weather app that charges uh, $260 a year. There's a VPN that's $520 a year. Uh, <sighs> there's a, a web translator for Safari that's $4,680 a year. My God. Yeah. Is Apple doing anything about these apps? Well, Apple takes them down when they get alerted to them. It, but I think it's a game of whack-a-mole. And do they do they stop the payments, the recurring payments? Apple, in my experience, Apple is very, very good about refunding your money and, and cutting off subscriptions and things like that. Okay. You know, I think this is a, a volume game as well. Right, right. Now, one of the other things that this article points out is that the scam app has a 4.6 out of 5 rating. So they're buying reviews. They are absolutely buying reviews. They have a five-star review for this QR reader app, and the review reads, Staff is fun and friendly. Sports on the beach volleyball and tug of war. Captain Dave is a good guy. What? So it's word salad. Right. <laughs> right. Just randomly generated. Ugh. So they've purchased a bunch of good ratings, and, and people fall for it. So buyer beware. These things are out there. There's many of them. This is one of those whack-a-mole things. Before you download an app, check to make sure that it's something that actually isn't already included in your phone. Yeah. You know what I do when I'm looking at things like this mm. is I go to the one-star reviews and I read them. And this, this applies to anything I buy on Amazon or any apps I read. I, I see what they're complaining about. Or Newegg is a prime example. When I see that all the one-star reviews are about, you know, like hardware failures or something like that, or, or something that is kind of benign, I would think, Yeah. then I don't drop my consideration of the app. You know, I, I got it, it arrived and it was broken. Right, or, right. this right. app doesn't work on my phone. Sure. Right. But if somebody starts saying this is a scam in the one-star reviews, <laughs> right. that's when they get my attention. Yeah. So, so I check the one-stars. Yep, yep. Worth it to take the extra time. Yep. All right. Well, Joe, it's time for our catch of the day. This is another one that was sent in from one of our listeners. This was a, a listener named Kevin. And he said the following arrived in my inbox recently, and I thought it might be of interest. 
So here is the note that Kevin received. It says, Greetings to you. I'm Miss Zara Diane. I'm contacting because I want to be your friend and confide in you because I have in my possession now 92 kilograms of gold bars. Quality 23 carat, purity 96% that I inherited from my late mother, which I want to ship to your country and sell for investment in your country because I want to leave Cote de Lavoie. I don't like it. I'm not French, so. And relocate to your country and continue my education in your country. I want you to stand by me as my tutor and ship this gold bars to your country and sell for investment in your country. Note that I am writing you this email purely on the ground of trust because I don't know you and we have not met before. I found you here and my mind convinced me that I can trust you. Waiting to hear from you from Zara Diane. Hmm. So the gold bars is a... That's a that's a twist. Right. That is a twist. Gold bars. How are you going to get 93 kilograms of gold bars to me? Yeah. What's um, 92 kilograms in real weight? That's... Uh... <laughs> well, it is different because this is actually mass. 93 kilograms is a... 92 kilograms is a large mass of gold. Right. Um, why are you buying gold bars that are only 96% pure? Generally, these gold bars are a lot more pure than that, I think. Oh, uh, well, all right. But they, they got them from their late mother, so they okay. they, they inherited them. Maybe, yes, uh, maybe the story gold is, bars, the, yeah. yes, the lore is they inherited. At, at any rate, uh, gold bars are valuable. They're also heavy. Yes, so very much expensive so. to ship. So I'm guessing probably if you followed up on this, that you're probably going to be on the hook for some shipping fees. Ah, so you think it's a kind of a small scam? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I mean, a few hundred dollars to ship a few hundred pounds of gold, that makes sense to me. Right, yeah. I, I don't know. It's also funny that um, uh, my mind convinced me that I can trust you. Right. <laughs> Your mind. <All> well, <laughs> And then, then I'm supposed to tutor you in something when you get here, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So the, the intentions are pure. They just want to get out of their country. They want to be educated and they want your help. They want to right. be your friend and yep. confide in you. Can you help me? So playing off of that trust. The four most powerful words in social engineering. There you go. Well, Kevin, thanks for sending that in to us. That is our catch of the day for this week. Coming up next, we've got my interview with Jenny Radcliffe from Human Factor Security. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Jenny Radcliffe. She is the proprietor, owner, CEO at Human Factor Security. She specializes in social engineering and training to protect people against it. Really interesting conversation. So here's my talk with Jenny Radcliffe. What was your pathway to get into this particular line of work? I'm asked this a lot and really... I'm not that old, but I've been doing this for over 35 years because I started when I was really little. I was just a kid. So I grew up in Liverpool in the northwest of England, and I used to be babysat or looked after by my cousins. And half of my family are very senior police officers and uh, military, hmm. and the other half were not so much. And it was the other half that I used to hang out with. And whilst my parents thought I was tucked up in bed reading, you know, books, we actually we were out uh, exploring empty buildings and sites in Liverpool um, and learning how to get into places, how to run away very quickly. And then as I sort of grew up and sort of got an education, I still did it. So I still was interested in locked doors and the things that people didn't want us to see, things that happened after hours or behind the scenes. So I was always just really interested in, in that, never to steal anything, never to break anything, just curiosity. By the time 
I was asked to do this uh, for money. I'd already been kind of doing it anyway for a long time. And it was about 10 years ago that I first heard the term social engineering. And someone said, you know, the job that you do, you know, talking your way past security guards, talking your way past receptionists, sort of getting into buildings to see how it was done and then report back to the firm that asked you to do it. That's called social engineering. And in the UK at the time, it just wasn't that well known. And I kind of knew it was, you know, I guess the answer to the question is, I kind of always did it. I always had a, a disposition for this type of work. And fortunately for me, the industry legitimized it and it became a job. <laughs> but uh, it could have been so different. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you have any uh, particular uh, interesting stories to share about some of your uh, your professional exploits? I mean, I talk about this a lot when I do conferences and things, but I mean, I, I can tell you the first time when I was really little, I was about eight years old and we got into a zoo that was near where I lived. Um, a te- one of these awful zoos that's been closed down because of animal rights. And But I was really interested in, in going there. And this particular night, we were looking for somewhere to explore. And I asked if we could get into the zoo. And, and you know, back then, there was no CCTV. There were no real alarms or even a security guard on the site. So at night, they just they just locked the gate and, and left it. <laughs> so we climbed over the fence. And, and the reason I was really interested was I was interested in seeing the lion that was in the zoo because I'd sort of seen it during the daytime and I'd gone with the school and with my parents. And I wondered if it slept at night. <laughs> and uh <laughs> It was pitch black and, and deadly quiet, which should have been, you know, a warning, really, because I now know um, professionally the places are not quiet at night. But this was silent. And we sort of wandered through the zoo and I had a little Sesame Street torch and I shined it to where I thought this lion's cage was. And it was like literally about a foot in front of me. It was right up against the fence and it went crazy and growled and flung itself against the fence and we all ran out and climbed back over the fence and ran away and I guess that should have put me off but it didn't (laughs) and so after that we broke into um our funeral parlors and offices Mm. and museums and fairgrounds and you know right up until sort of the present day where I've found myself you know in infrastructure buildings um you know, very secure sites, some of the best known buildings in the UK and, you know, falling off roofs and things, you know, for, like I say, about 30 years. What I feel is doing all of those things is at least protecting people. Um, And if I can do it and tell the firm how I did it, then they can protect themselves from the bad guys doing it. So that's the line that I put out when people ask me about it in case they think, you know, I'm actually a criminal, which I'm not. (laughs) Now, when you were a kid and and doing this, it was driven by curiosity. You you weren't out there, uh, you know, stealing things from these places you broke into. Oh, God, no. I see. I'm a good girl. I always was. I, I wouldn't dream of doing anything naughty. But yes, we were just curious. I mean, there was a big museum in the town and I mean, it's still there. And it was just curiosity. It was it was one of those things where when I talk about this at conferences and things, people come up to me afterwards and they say, you know, we did that as well. You know, there's a haunted house on your in your neighborhood. And should we, you know, we think it's haunted. Should we go in at night? You know, it's mm-hmm. the daft things that kids do. And so, no, we, it really was just purely out of curiosity. And I say now on the job, if you're a social engineer, if you're a pen tester, you have to be the most ethical person in the building. And you have to be beyond reproach because obviously you know the job is 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 full of temptations and everything else 
it, there has to be a very clear line between what we're doing and, and you know any kind of criminal activity and I just never felt that way inclined hmm. even though I suppose technically we weren't supposed to be there um, right Tr- trespassing is trespassing right trespassing <laughs> is trespassing absolutely yeah now uh, one of the things that you do uh, you do a lot of training with people with organizations on social engineering and so what are some of the insights you've gained from that are there things that surprise you uh, sort of uh, you know universal things that you'd think people would be better equipped to handle than they are it's so funny because the psychological tools that enable social engineering just don't change i mean they're the same contracts as, as has always been out there so i always talk to people about you know fear or anxiety is something that people still respond to it's sort of when the brain gets frightened it, it knocks out its decision making capacity a little bit and and you know it's how phishing emails work or ransomware you know i'm going to frighten you a little bit i'm going to make you feel a little bit anxious and in that moment if a social engineer can lead the person down an easy route out of that situation people will always follow it and you know it's just the right combination of psychology for everyone all of us are susceptible to it and I think what surprises me is just how efficiently that psychology can work you know you've got that fear you've got sort of greed or or, or sort of the promise of something coming to you or then there's flattery as well and you know so I sort of say fear flattery greed and the right timing in whatever combination of those things works for the person that script will work on nearly everyone and 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 really that's that's it surprises me just how true that that remains really. I often think about, you know, how many times in all of our lives have we looked back on how we had responded to something earlier in our lives and thought to ourselves, goodness, what was I thinking? Yeah. And, and, you know, and the thing is, a social engineer's job, certainly from the malicious side, and actually anyone, uh, anyone hacking uh, an organization through any means really is to is to make that thinking fuzzy, you know, so that you so you're not really thinking straight. Your decisions aren't the best decisions. And as I say, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but we're all susceptible to it. And that's why these attacks can be so successful. Now, in your own life, how do you combat social engineering? Do you find yourself having a a constant level of vigilance or uh, are you and how does that affect you personally? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we have to practice what we preach to a certain extent. And I'd like to think I'd spot, you know, most attacks that came my way, but none of us are immune. And I think what happens is in common with many security professionals, there's that massively increased paranoia that you have in your lives. You know, so if if the pizza guy rings and asks for my address, I kind of say, well, why do you need it? You know, (laughs) do do you or do you not want this pizza? (laughs) Yeah. you know, Prove to me that you're delivering a pizza. And they're like, well, you rung us. Right, right. So, so what is your advice to people, to organizations? What, what is the best way to protect yourself against this in a realistic, practical way? Well, what I say to people is, you know, unfortunately, we don't live in the world we used to live in. And we do have to be more vigilant towards attacks on, on ourselves than before. And, and I think the advice is when anyone's trying to 
educate people about social engineering. It's to make it personal. So when I educate organizations and staff, what I say is protect yourself and your information because by default that protects the company. And, and that's why you know companies pay me to do it because they know that we make that personal connection. And, and then people say, oh, well, you know, I didn't realize that sharing all this stuff on social media or reusing a password, you know, all those things, they sort of don't really make that connection. So the advice I give to people is, Basic things that we all understand in the industry, you know, like be careful what you share on social media, don't have open profiles, use strong passwords and don't reuse them. But I also say to people from the human side, if somebody contacts you, whether that's in person, over the phone or via email, and actually increasingly snail mail as well. You know, that, that that's a big attack factor in the UK right now for seniors particularly. Mm. But if, you know, if someone contacts you and you feel any heightened emotion, so if you're really happy because there's the promise of something coming your way or if you feel slightly anxious, if they ask about money or personal information, you know, those are red flags. And what you need to do is take a step back, verify them independently and, you know, just really let that kind of emotion subside a little bit before you, you take action or make a decision. Because nearly all approaches rely on, you know, a quick decision made in haste, made in the heat of emotion. As Sometimes when we take a step back from that and just give ourselves a little bit of time, then, you know, it becomes clear that perhaps that's not the best course of action. And there's actually a couple of really good campaigns in the UK right now. And one of them is called Take Five. So you take five minutes and in a very Brit friendly way, they say, someone asks you to do something you get an email asking you to do something go and make a cup of tea drink the tea and after that make the decision you know mm. and of course by the time you've done those things you've got a little bit more rationale coming back to your to, to sort of your mental space and we make better decisions but the best advice is if someone asks you personal information, if someone makes you emotional or if someone asks you to do something, especially in haste, you know, don't do it straight away. Take time to think about it and you might see, you know, that it's not the best course of action. And I think it's really that simple. It's simple advice, but difficult to execute um, when you're at the end of a you know, professional con artist. Joe, what do you think? This makes me want to go out and break into things, Dave. <laughs> I won't, but it yeah. makes me want to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think we all had uh, those little uh, times when we were kids when we went exploring, I yeah, guess. <laughs> we were places we shouldn't have been. That's right. That's yes. right. That's right. I like one of the things she points out. Curiosity is probably the fundamental personality trait of a hacker. Mm -hmm. um, and she is no exception. It's great. She touches on ethics. Ethics are very important. A couple of weeks ago, we talked to Christopher Hadnagy, who's building a code of ethics or has built a code of ethics for, right. for social engineers. I think that's great as well. Yeah. From a standpoint of how to defend yourself, I, I like that she talks about fear disabling your critical thinking process. You right. Know, the, the social engineer will scare you and then say, let me show you an easy way out of this, which right. is not something in your best interest. So they short circuit that rational part exactly. of your brain. And yeah. She says uh, that they have a, a campaign in England now called the Take Five, which I think is great. Yeah. You know, that's a great suggestion. Something comes up to you that these social engineers are going to try to always create a sense of urgency. It's an artificial sense of urgency, artificial time constraints. Mm -hmm. And you're also going to feel these heightened emotions. And she says, let that be a red flag. So if right. you're getting any kind of heightened emotion, whether it's, hey, I'm going to be rich, you know, like. Right. Like, even if you get excited. Right. Like you and I get every time we read one of our catch of the day. That's right. right? That's right. We, we that's know true. that we're going to make millions with yep. gold bars coming in. That's true. Be aware. Be cognizant of that. Oh, hey, I'm emotional. Maybe I should just 
think about this or, or go get that cup of tea, she says. Mm-hmm. Or in my case, maybe coffee, although I can't have too much of it. <laughs> well, and run it by a friend. Run it by right? a friend. Yeah. That is a great suggestion. Anytime you have something like this, even just saying it out loud to somebody else, you'll be like, hey, this person says I should change the bank account information. Oh, then we get, this is a scam. I got <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Never mind. That's right. Sorry to bother you. Yeah, that's true. It's right. true. And, and just saying it out loud might even help. But no, mm-hmm. say it to somebody else and see what they say. That's a yeah. great, great suggestion as well. Yeah. well. I really enjoyed the conversation with Jenny. And again, the name of her company is Human Factor Security. Our thanks to Jenny Radcliffe for taking the time for us. Thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technology. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our editor is John Petrick. Technical editor is Chris Russell. Executive editor is Peter Kilby. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 